Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree or affiliates. I am continuing along on a, a cross-war tour. The last two weeks have been from Tokyo to Milan, Zurich, Dusseldorf, Amsterdam. Now I am in London, and we are hearing news today here in London that we're going to get a soft Brexit. The uh, UK is, is coming to some terms with the EU. Uh, we're going to talk about global portfolios with our, our guests and talking about trends in asset management with our two guests. Uh, but before I get to them, Professor Siegel, uh, the market continues. Uh, yeah. We see we had a little dip, but we're, we're back. Yeah, and we got the employment report today. Um, good. Um, very close to expectations. Uh, 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 payroll was up 228. It was expected to be up about 200, just a little above, and almost no revisions to the past data. Unemployment rate, as expected, stayed exactly at 4.1%. Uh, a little light by one tenth on the hourly earnings, a uh, little bump up in the hours, but um, uh, uh, other than that, it was almost exactly on expectation. It takes out, uh, you know, any last. <laughs> uh, impediment to next week's uh, increase in the Fed funds rate. I mean, this certainly is, uh, you know, a, a good enough uh, employment report to 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 um, to hike on that. So we are going to see uh, that. The, the big news, I, I think, what everyone's going to be looking for is is really going to be the um, uh, the dot plot for 2018. Uh, whether there's any change from what we've seen. Um, the year before, because we're going to get that increase. But I think the dot plot and how many increases we're going to get is going to be the news that will come out of next week. We do have some inflation data, but that doesn't look like anything is going to be at all substantial. Uh, Q4 GDP is running around two and a half, two point six, still below three. If we if we get a good bump on Christmas sales, uh, it could end above three, and that would be um, three consecutive quarters over three, which would be the first time that we've had three consecutive quarters over three since the financial crisis, which would be, um, you know, certainly good news um, for the economy. Uh, we have that craziness in Bitcoin, of course, continuing, but uh, stocks themselves have, uh, you know, not much volatility uh, going on. We had that dip in the in the tech stocks, but. Uh, they sort of recovered their uh, their footing. Um, so, and the long bond uh, is always like the long bond. It's at 237, been fluctuating between 230 and 245 for so many months. It's hard to remember when it wasn't. 
Yeah. We, now, this week, we, we saw some more news out of Washington. We saw something on infrastructure, which, I mean, I was always surprised they didn't start with infrastructure, maybe get some bipartisan support from Democrats and Republicans. Anything you saw there? I mean, you seem to see maybe a, a tiny yield pickup after they announced that. Um, in the, yeah. In the, well, I mean, there's some people that are getting say, hey, listen, we got the tax thing under our belts. Let's move to the next priority. The truth of the matter is they still got a lot of things to work out. And although, although I do think there will be a tax bill in front of Trump before Christmas um, uh, that he will sign um, as the Christmas present, um, I think that uh, uh, I don't think there's going to be much talk of the infrastructure till next year. And uh, there's, you know, there, there will be talking about where the funds come from, what's going to be having interest rate and everything. Um, what really the Republicans need to do is remind it that, uh, you know, 150 million Americans are going to see their withholding go down in their January paycheck. And uh, that, you know, is something that they need to sell because uh, all the public opinion polls uh, show not a favorable reaction uh, to this uh, tax reform. And that's... Uh, I think a really very poor selling job on the uh, part of the Republicans. Yeah, and he, you know we had a had a move back this week. I think it's the best week for the dollar this year, and maybe that's just a sort of unwinding of all the past uh, negativeness on on the dollar this year. But maybe it is something with the the rates and the taxes starting to move through. Any any comments? Yeah, it's hard there? to say because uh, you know uh, you know when when t- when they finally made the vote on the senate to go through with the tax reform we saw that 10 year yield jump up to uh you know 247 48 i thought it was on its way up and yeah. back down i mean you know as long as the germans are at 30 and the japanese are at zero <laughs> um uh you know it's 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 hard to yeah. it's you know hard to get that 10 year up much further than that i really don't have strong feelings about where the dollar is going to go next year but i do think Given the strength of the economy, um, uh, maybe the long rate's not going to go up that much, but I, I do think that uh, we could be looking at three hikes next year, uh, at least at this point, uh, for the Fed. And how much is priced in from the Fed futures at this point? Uh, the Fed futures, uh, don't forget, the Fed futures always understate uh, because of the hedging qualities yeah. on the Fed futures. But uh, let's put it this way, January uh, 19 Fed futures are 185. I'm just looking at it right now. So you know we're right now between one and one and a quarter. Well, next week go one and a quarter, 150. So you know there's probably two two and a half hikes. And given the hedging underestimates that are there, I would say the median is probably uh, uh, closer to three, not the four. Goldman Sachs, a few others uh, over the past week have uh, have inked in four. Wow. increases at every single uh, quarterly Fed meeting next year. Um, but I think that completely depends on when the lower unemployment rate uh, will or if trigger uh, wage increases that exceed productivity growth. Very good. Any any concluding thoughts uh, on just what things you're looking at for the rest of the year? Yeah, well, you know, as I, I think I mentioned last week, I do think next year is going to be rougher political considerations, Fed hikes, um, uh, then this year, I do think the tax cut, don't forget the corporate tax cut is really not priced in. I mean, it, it's priced in, but actually won't take a place under the Senate bill until 2019. We're not going to get the boost of earnings yet. So, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of good stuff is priced in, which means next year is going to be, 
you know, much closer to long-run normal, uh, not the double, you know, healthy double digits that we got in 2017. Well, very good, Professor. Thanks for your comments. Thank you. See you next week. We're going to welcome back one of our guests, uh, John Davi. He's been on the program before. He's the founder, chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. John has 18 years of experience across macro strategy, ETF strategy, quantitative research, and equity derivatives. I've known John probably for half of those years, at least, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, when he was at the Morgan Stanley Institutional ETF Group. Um, John has worked with with WisdomTree from a client perspective. Uh, John, welcome back to our program. Great. Thanks for having me again, Jeremy. So, you know, we are getting close to the year-end outlook. Everybody starts putting together their 2018 thoughts. I know that's something you did at, at Morgan Stanley's ETF desk, uh, you know, quite often. I followed your, your always your thoughts for the next year, and I know that was one of your most widely read pieces. And I just saw in my inbox this week, thoughts for 2018, eight, eight different strategies for 2018. We can't talk specific ETFs on our program, but we're going to talk about all the, the market segments that you're, you're focused on in your eight themes. Uh, maybe, you know, just for our, for our listeners, talk a brief second on Astoria and, and then, you know, we'll get into your eight themes. Sure. So, um, so uh, thanks for having me again. So we founded uh, Astoria in uh, July of this year, um, and our business is to provide ETF um, solutions for advisors and for their clients. So I, my background is I spent um, my first eight years in quantitative derivative research. So um, you know, in terms of like our investment process, um, you know, it's very much quantitative, you know, systematic, um, and we use ETFs as the building blocks to put together these solutions for investors. Very good. And so, as you think forward for your outlook, like, what's the the major, uh, maybe even before you get into a specific thing, but like, what's the big? overall arching view. You heard Professor Siegel getting a little bit more cautious on 2018, just in that we've had a lot of catalysts in the U.S. We're running out of catalysts. Any, what's your big picture, high-level view for 2018? Sure. So I, I have, um, so when we put together the firm, I, I put together the, the investor deck in March. And basically in March, I said, look, the environment really is as good as it gets for stocks, right? It's a dream scenario. You've got, you know, in earnings that are reflecting higher globally, Right, you've got tremendous, tremendous liquidity that's being supplied, right? And you've got muted inflation. So, and that was in March, right? So, um, you know, we were saying back in March, okay, you want to own emerging market equities, you want to own emerging market effects, you want to own things like Japan, you know, energy, right, cyclicals. So now, as I think ahead, um, you know, that's obviously getting to be consensus, right? So I did a Bloomberg ETF trade idea panel last night, and uh, you know, everyone was bullish on the panel, right? So if if being bullish is consensus, then that means it's in the price. And if it's in the price, then that means that in order for you to outperform, right, you've got to have an added consensus view, and you need to time it, and you need to size it. So for me, we're constructive, and, and we put out this you know piece, as you mentioned, ADTS for 2018. Um, and, and I do think that you know risk assets trade well for the next quarter, okay? But our added consensus view is that, hey, you know, because of the Fed rate hikes next year, right, because of things like the potential for other central banks to um, stop their QE programs, right, uh, and obviously in the Fed, you've got them doing quantitative tightening. Well, you know, the rate of change next year should mean that there will be a decline in liquidity. And, you know, stocks trade on the margin, and the rate of change is everything. So for us, you know, we want to build well-constructed portfolios, right, that carry well, 
okay, that have diversification built in. So whereas in a former life, I would have said, all right, well, we'll hedge the portfolio by picking this part of the option curve and we'll sell this option to cheapen it and we'll have you know a well-carried option position. My mandate now is to use ETF, so I'm saying, okay, we own all this risk assets. And literally, I don't want it to seem like I'm bearish, because if you look at our playbook, we're saying literally you want to own things like international small caps, things like energy stocks, because, you know, we're still constructive, um, you know, for the first quarter, let's say. But I just simply think, you know, for me, that, you know, you want to also diversify your portfolio by owning, you know, liquid alternatives and things like gold and duration and, uh, you know, Professor Siegel mentioned about the, the long bond. So, you know, the long bond is really interesting because it has this, like, asymmetric um, attribute. So, first of all, anytime the market sells off big time, right, people buy duration, right? And then, oh, by the way, you have all this demand overseas, right, because people have negative um, yields in, in Europe and Japan. So you've got them buying it. So it's kind of nice to own an asset that everyone else is buying after you've purchased it. So we're constructive. I just think on the margin, liquidity next year can decline. So I, I would agree with what he said. You know, I think next year will look a lot different. Um, but, you know, for the first quarter, we still have like a very constructive uh, view on the markets. Very good. I mean, let's drill into a few of those areas. I mean, the, the bond side, I, I sort of worry that the next sell-off, you know, everybody has these standard 60-40 portfolios and they've been relying on, you know, as even Siegel said, on the on the futures curve that these are these negative duration assets from, from the Fed futures. And they sort of rely on bond correlations being negative uh, so that, you know, equity markets sell off, bonds go up in prices, yields go down. And I, you know, the, I think one of the risks is, well, maybe rates, maybe these central banks start normalizing faster, maybe rates start rising, and then equities and bonds go down together. Is that something you at all think is possible? I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the way, so, so fixed income was this tremendous asset class in the 70s and 80s and 90s, right? I mean, literally, you bought bonds and you got, you know, you got income, you got carry, you got diversification, you got hedging. I mean, this is like, you know, Christmas morning for my kids, right? I mean, so what happens? So common sense will tell you that when you put $2 trillion of assets into an asset class, as it's been over the last seven, eight years, that you're going to lose all those attributes, right? So it's no longer a risk reduction tool. Actually, if you look at the duration on AGG, uh, it's a little over six now, and it was like three and a half in 2009. So you actually are making like a bet on the belly of the curve, which you know I think is not trivial. Um, and certainly you have the potential because you know it's no longer a risk reduction tool, and you know the diversification isn't there, and you know the stock bond correlation isn't what it used to be. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why for us, like, we actually prefer as little fixed income as possible in our portfolios. And, and we do, so So that's why I mentioned earlier on about, okay, like, you know, maybe you want to look at liquid alternatives to hedge because that actually has done well. And there are some strategies, and, and I know we can't talk specific ETFs, but yeah. there are some liquid all products that actually have, like, really good downside capture ratio and an ETF wrapper. Um, so we would... So we use fixed income only for income, and, and most of what we have would be at a benchmark. So I, I've talked in a show before about why we like you know things like munis and things like loans, um, things like preferred equities, which you know they're 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 giving you two times the yield that you'd get, two times greater yield than AGG um, index, the the Bloomberg equity, um, 
the Bloomberg uh, Barclays, Barclays Ag, yeah. Yeah, Ag Index. So we, we would only really use fixed income for yield, but I, I'm very worried about fixed income. I mean, it's you know, it's um, it, it's extremely um, bubble-like, and you know, I think the correlation no longer makes a, a valuable ha- asset to own. So let's talk about what you like in liquid alternatives, I and mean, what are the types of strategies you'd explore as a as a hedge for a portfolio that you don't without the specific ETF, but the types of strategies you, you're thinking about. Okay, so um, and again, I, I want to make it clear that we actually are very constructive, but I, again, our at a consensus view is that liquidity next year will significantly decline, or at least the rate of change will decline. So that'll have dramatic portfolio implications, right? I, I want to emphasize that when I read all these reports. Right. And in fairness to the people that put it out, and I've been doing this piece for five years, I mean, no one really will invest, you know, based on a year-ahead outlook piece, you know, in December 2nd for an entire year, right? This is more like, what do you think the key themes are? And frankly, you know, we like all these themes, so we've actually owned it already, right? <laughs> so um, it's not like, okay, starting January 1st is when you're going to start to allocate to these, to these trades. Sure. But look, I mean, I think, I think gold is interesting, Right. So, so we I, we get pushback in gold, and, and my point here is like, okay, so obviously there's a Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency bubble, right? So gold will be a lot higher if if you didn't have that, but we know that, you know, it's it's probably gonna eventually uh, burst, right? So that I think is a call option on on Bitcoin. I think gold is uncorrelated. So anytime you get a big market pullback, right, gold tends to outperform, right? So Bitcoin, let's say it's operating to its own beat right now, so it's not really correlated to anything. But gold still has that like negative correlation with stocks. It's very on their own, okay? Um, and, and it's been time-tested for years. So, And I'm not saying you want to own a lot of it now. I just think you know having some of it in your portfolio is worthy because, again, timing the markets is tough, right? So we're a relatively new firm, right? So I say to myself, okay, well, you've got all these big firms out there, big asset managers and hedge funds, and they have infinite amounts of human capital, and they have AI, they've got machine learning, they've got deep learning, and they, let's say, on average, most of them don't, you know, time the market well. So what's the probability that I will? Probably low to moderate of having, like, repeatable success. So I like to own these diversified instruments like gold. There's there's a liquid oil product that does um, what we think, you know, hedge funds try and do, which is, you know, manage the downside. And um, they just run, like, a linear regression against the HFR uh, hedge fund index, and they and they use liquid ETFs um, in a rules-based format. And then the other one that we have is the, the, the long bond, um, just because of the asymmetry between the demand overseas, along with, um, you know, anytime the market has, like, a big sell-off, you know, long, the duration usually outperforms. Very good. We're talking with John Davi, founder of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Uh, and John, when you, when you, you, one of your themes that I, I saw you writing about was you believe in sort of potentially a, a curve flattening, and you talked about a few different asset classes you're thinking about for a flattening curve, which would be the Fed's tightening, but maybe rates trick, tick downward, which would be you know why you would have that long bond portfolio for a hedge, but also think the the rates are flattening. What do you think benefits from these flattening yield curves? Sure, and, and this this is a theme that's very much in line with this idea that you know we're late cycle, so. You know, again, that's now consensus, right? Just because it's the end of the cycle doesn't mean it's going to, you know, end, right? So I started in 1999, and 
we had a big, massive internet bubble, and I was told not to buy internet stocks, that it was in a bubble, and, and what happened? Okay, the index went up 100% that year. Like, literally, the NASDAQ index went up 100%. So some internet stocks were up, you know, four or five times that. So where we are in the cycle, um, typically, and, and again, given my background, we try and look at all the different outcomes and assign probabilities to it. So there's enough of a flattening in the curve now that we go back and we say, okay, let's test to see what actually outperforms when you have a uh, curve flattening. And historically, what you find is that things like energy stocks um, do well, emerging markets do well, um, you know, commodities kind of react um, better. And, um, you know, so we we like owning, you know, mixes of all those things. you know, given where we are in this environment and given, you know, how much the curve is flattened. And and just to drive a point home, so when I was on this call, um, you know, back in the summertime, I remember, like, us saying, okay, what's the w- one risk factor that you, you would use in order to kind of take risk off? And, you know, I remember specifically saying the yield curve basically inverted, and at that time it was 100 bips, right? So then everyone starts to talk about it, right? So then it becomes consensus. Then it becomes in the price, and now you you only have about 50 bips before it actually inverts, right? That's pretty massive, right? So if you talk to any hedge fund, they'll say that they had the flattening trade on, and you know, so it is something that I'm worried about. Now, our at a consensus view is like, okay, well, let's back test and see, okay, how long does it actually take for a recession to hit once the curve inverts? And it's actually like one to two years. So, I mean, that's like an eternity, right? Like, there's so much focus on short-term returns that, you know, you can stay long these risk assets, right? And, um, you know, like one, two years is a long time away. And and not, I, we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but I do write in our note that commodities is something that, you know, is worth looking at. Um, I mean, I, I think there's signs of inflation rising. And, and I mentioned on this panel yesterday, and everyone looked at me like I had, you know, two heads, um, but I, I do think commodities is, is an area that's been underowned, underloved. You know, it's a call option on inflation, um, and I think that's you know, it, it's it's something that you want to start to dip your toe in, and then as you watch inflation uh, readings, you know, maybe you start to allocate a little bit more next year. Very interesting. What about so you talk as the, one of the themes being international small caps is where is that uh, part of that investment view? What, what, what's what's the story with the small cap side internationally? Well, I mean, right now you've got all this liquidity that's flowing through the system. So, you know, what what benefits when you have, you know, tremendous liquidity? So it should be less liquid assets. And, you know, I think international small caps is probably, you know, one of the most e- – one of the least li- uh, liquid asset classes. So – and it carries well. I mean, there's obviously like a well-documented risk premium for small cap stocks. And Talk, um, Tell people what you mean by it carries well. Um, well – so if you think about the U.S., right, so U.S. small cap stocks, you know, Russell 2000 index, you know, it typically has like a higher beta and higher volatility um, than large cap stocks. So when you go overseas, you, you typically find that um, international small cap stocks are actually lower beta and lower volatility. Um, and it, you know, it's more of a play on the domestic demand story globally. Um, so, you know, when you look at it, you know, they historically have had like a, a positive skew to book the price. So a little bit of like a value bias, a little bit more higher earnings variability. Um, but they have like, you know, overall different sector exposures, different factor exposures compared to what's, you know, typically like in your traditional portfolio is mostly large caps. 
So we like that it diversifies a little bit from our, our factor and sector exposures relative to our large cap um, stocks that we own. Very good. What do you think about the, the high yield bond market? Is that a place, you know, that a lot of people talk about European high yields. I'm traveling around Europe that the European high yields have yields less than U.S. Treasuries. Uh, is, is the high yield bond market something you're interested in? I mean, I, I think it's so you have this like asymmetry, right? Because first of all, um, there's been a lot of money allocated to it, right? So it's very rich valuation perspective, right? But just because something is rich doesn't mean that it's going to start to underperform, right? Um, but, you know, my point here is that, okay, it, it'll, so if you if you have to own it, I would underweight it. If you can short it, I think it's a good short. Um, or if you don't need to own it, then I would avoid it, which is what we do now. Um, but let's say you're allowed to short, right? I mean, you have something that is incredibly economically sensitive, right? So in 2008, when, when the S&P fell 50%, high yield credit was down like, I think it was like 25%, 30%. There's a lot more sellers now than, than there were back in 2008. So you have an asset class that you get any sort of slip in the economy can easily go down 10 15%. So if you have to pay 5% carry to short it, right, which is what this thing yields, you pay one to make three, in a in a delta one format, right, without using options, I mean that's like a really good payout. Um, so I, I just think, look, you know, it's not the time in the cycle where you want to own high yield credit. You can get that type of yield and carry looking at things like loans, right, uh, preferreds, right, um, which are more, um, you know, less economically sensitive. I would say. So I, you know, we look at trade offs and we look at okay, you know, we'd rather own that than you know have high yield credit. And again, there's a lot more sellers now in high yield credit than there were back in 2008. So I think it's very, very susceptible in any sort of um, turn in the economy. Very good. Let's talk a little bit about developments at Astoria. So you've maybe high level, we're going to be talking with one of your colleagues who joined recently, somebody that I know fairly well. Maybe talk a little bit about how the business is going in addition to just these themes for 2018 and, and who you're trying to reach with your, your efforts at Astoria. Sure. So, um, you know, our, our angle is that, um, you know, between uh, myself and, and Bruce, who I know you're going to have on, um, and, we, and we have some other folks on our team as well, you know, we really say to ourselves um, that our value proposition is our – so we do all our in-house quantitative cross-asset cross research, and um, so that's one of our edges. And then, you know, we build all the solutions ourselves, and we have, you know, we think, you know, some pretty good – product experts on the ETF side. Um, so, you know, people are very receptive. We've been putting out a lot of commentary. Um, and, uh, you know, overall, the, the messaging has been well-received, and we've had some early success. And, um, you know, it's good, obviously, to have, like, a well-constructed um, view on the market, and obviously it helps when, you know, markets go up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, overall, we're happy with the, the success so far. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're glad to be on the show to talk about it. Very good. And the types of portfolios you're offering to people, you're offering a few different flavors of model portfolios, but also what other types of services, you know, that we, we, you and I have talked a little bit about going after different, different types of clients. What, what are the, the people that you're, you're really trying to reach out to? So that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. So we have, um, so we, we've built, so I have principles for how I've managed my own personal money. So, okay, so there's retirement, which, you know, you, you invest it a certain way. And, you know, in re 
When you have like a 30-year time horizon, you can obviously extract different risk factors in the marketplace, right? So something like value, which is not working in the last four or five years, you know, you, you can really kind of play value in a retirement strategy, right? So, so we launched, we had a retirement model, right, which is, again, principles of how I personally manage money. Then we have had an income model, which is, okay, well, you're not getting anything at the bank, so let's, you know, invest in a relatively low vol strategy of ETFs that to try and get like three to five percent carry, and then you know we have like a taxable um, strategy which is what we call multi-asset risk strategy Mars, and um, and that's more solvent for like one two-year time horizon, um, you know using like a systematic rules-based uh, approach. So so we launched with these with these three models, and then we've had um, investors approach us. Um, basically say, okay, can you build a, a solution to solve for this? So we've evolved to be more like solution provider using our in-house research, um, macroeconomic quantitative framework, and, and our ETF product expertise. And, and since then, we've had you know, other institutions, you know, larger family offices, um, some pension funds that have um, approached us because they want to apply our principles and our ETF product expertise to their portfolios. So, you know, there's folks that um, – so we're providing services of actually managing money in-house, um, delivering our signals, being consultants. So, you know, that's kind of like my history of working on the sell side is you try and be like, you know, more solutions-based than, um, you know, just trying to like, you know, have only three specific uh, models to sell to, uh, to potential investors. Well, very good. We've been talking with John Davi. He's the founder, chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. John, thanks for joining us. Sure. We're going to, after the break, I'm going to be talking with John's colleagues, Bruce Levine, one of my former colleagues, now senior strategy advisor at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We've been talking the first half hour with John Davi, the founder and CIO of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. This half hour, we're going to be talking with one of John's colleagues, Bruce Levine. Uh, Bruce Levine was my former boss at Wisdom Tree. Uh, Bruce has, has moved on to some other things, uh, but he's now still involved with Wisdom Tree on our board. Uh, I should note that, you know, Bruce, welcome back to our program. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? Nice to be here. Good. Good to talk to you. It's been a while since we connected. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got involved with John uh, on Astoria Portfolio Advisors, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your background uh, from working with me at Wisdom Tree and, and your prior days. But maybe what first, what got you to join Astoria as, as part of the sort of ecosystem of portfolio management ETFs? Yeah. So, uh, like you, I've known John for many years and have had the utmost respect for what he does. Uh, he has a lot of passion, a lot of uh, intellectual honesty about what he's doing, which I appreciate. And uh, I think uh, Astoria is in all the right spaces for asset management. Uh, you know, we, we are active management using uh, passive underlying vehicles. Uh, we're harnessing the power of ETFs. Uh, and I think being a new firm in that space, you know, we're on the front end of everywhere where the asset management industry is going without any of the baggage uh, that sort of entrenched firms might have. Very good. So when tell, tell people a little bit about your background. Uh, before Wisdom Tree, you were at, uh, at iShares. Maybe tell a little bit people how you got started in ETFs, asset management, and sort of how you came to discover ETFs, and just a little bit yeah. more about yourself. It all started, actually. I was working at Bristol-Myers Squibb in, in their pension 
plan group, and I got excited about helping to manage their pension assets. And so I then, uh, in 1994, uh, went to work for Wells Fargo Nico out in San Francisco, which is the predecessor to Barclays Global. And uh, Wells was kind of an odd duck at the time because uh, they were proponents of indexing. And this is sort of back when there's, there's no smart beta. There's just dumb beta back then. And uh, the clients were pension funds, and we managed a lot of money, but we we're completely unknown uh, at the retail level. And so late in the 90s, um, after Barclays had bought, uh, bought Wells Nico, they wanted to sort of get into the retail space. And the ETF initiative was something that was going on internally. I was part of an internal SWAT team starting in 98 that was working on it. And um, Lee Cranefuss was the head of business, and we put together a good team and got a big um, funding commitment from Barclays Bank. And we launched... Uh, in May of 2000, uh, you know, a very large-scale effort to educate the market about what ETFs were and why they were useful. So you're really one of the, the godfathers of the industry here for us. <laughs> uh, I do go back a ways. I mean, there are some, some funny old stories, you know. Even just the name ETF was something. It was like an, our internal code name for the project. And the only reason it went public is we finally made our filing with the SEC, and we didn't know what else to call these things, so we just left it in there as exchange-traded funds. Prior to that, it was just cubes and spiders and diamonds and all those things. Yeah, and now people still think that you just trade iShares, so it, uh, the branding that they had is really one that worked. Yeah. So, you know, the iShares experience was great. Uh, we, um, I was the CFO at the start, and then I took on product development, uh, and so... I have had the pleasure of, you know, launching some of what are now the largest ETFs, things like EFA, EEM, DVY, LQD. Those were all um, things that I worked on after the initial launch of the iShare set. Yeah, very interesting. Um, now, as you think about sort of your, your career now and you're trying to work on, on the asset management side, what, what makes you think ETFs for, you know, you talked about doing active management of these passive structures? I mean, how, how do you see that industry shaping in terms of the, just the usage of these ETFs for portfolio management? Yeah, I think ETFs have really won the day in terms of their structural advantages over other, other ways of investing, certainly over funds. You know, their advantages being the transparency, the tax efficiency, the liquidity, uh, and, and over individual securities, because I think be able to buy a diversified basket in one trade and you know try to get your your active management alpha out of asset class moves or sector moves or country moves versus individual stock moves is a much better way to way to go so i think they've become part of the fabric for all investment managers and you know they're different approaches how you use them but they're here to stay and it's hard for me to imagine an asset management business that doesn't utilize the power of ETFs. Hmm. So how, how are you viewing, you know, the, one of the big themes on these, these ETF portfolio managers has just been the, the rise of the robos. I mean, how are you viewing the online, on, you know, experience? Is that something you think, Astoria, you're going to try to, to incorporate into what, what you guys are doing? Any, yeah. any thoughts there? So I think, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it seems at first blush so easy to just assemble an easy, a little portfolio of ETFs, maybe 10 of them, and to cover most of the world. And, and the truth is you can, and you can put it together quite inexpensively. Um, but to buy two ETFs. Own the world, just two ETFs, stocks yeah, and bonds, and it'll be done. <laughs> you can 
do that as well, right? So there's there's a lot of really way, easy ways to do it. Um, but you know, as John said earlier, you know, it's been an up market for a long time, and that's forgiven a lot of investing sins. But you know, in the, in the world ahead of us, um, those two holdings might not be so helpful. Uh, for example, fixed income might, which is typically seen as something that you know reduces the volatility of the portfolio, might be the spark of the volatility. Yeah. So, you know, so to really do this well, I think you need, um, you know, there's a lot of nuance to, to which ETFs to own. And I think this is where John has great expertise, uh, you know, really focuses in on the, the quant side uh, and the factor exposures. Um, and so that you, know, you got to understand where the risks are in your portfolio. When you buy like a worldwide ETF, it's much harder to know. So, you know, I think the robos will still have um, sort of uh, relatively simple solutions. But I think for a lot of investors, uh, particularly larger assets, you want to solve for more specific problems, potentially of income or downside protection, those kinds of things. Hmm. So uh, this week I'm actually traveling out in, in Europe, and I know you spent a good amount of time here in the in the London offices. Uh, any Any lessons you think about where the European business is today, things that you took from your travels to Europe, sort of how it influenced your, your career generally from going from the U.S. part of iShares over to, to London? Yeah. So I was over there from 03 to 06. I uh, had a fabulous experience. Uh, it was a great um, time for the business. When I went over there, iShares had uh, two funds, a FTSE 100 and a Eurostox, and that was it. And, uh, you know, the markets over there uh, are much like the markets here, they seem to be maybe 10 to 15 years behind uh, as a general rule. And I'd say if there was two big differences I saw over there, one was that the banks uh, had much more influence at the country level. So no Glass-Steagall in Europe. So, you know, in France, you had Sockgen and in Switzerland, UBS and Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that dominance, you know, included sort of retail investment products. And then the second thing I noticed was the individual investor culture was very different over there, maybe because they hadn't had 401k plans to where they were forced to invest, um, you know, and, and they also didn't have like a, a Vanguard equivalent at the time who had sort of offered a, a way for an individual to do it relatively inexpensively. And so they just didn't quite develop the same um, you know, culture of investing at the at the retail level. But you know, I think now that's all um, changing, and 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 the market there continues to grow quite nicely. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we talk about challenges of trading ETFs in the U.S. for a small ETF to really try to get successful. You know, how many things have to come together and get the trading? And trading here seems to be also one of those issues where it's so fragmented. It's not. It's not quite what we have in the U.S. yet. The U.S. is an amazing market when you sort of put all that liquidity pointed in one direction at one, you know, exchange or, or set of exchanges that share prices, and uh, and Europe is very fragmented, uh, and yet the structure of an ETF is is so strong that it's growing in spite of that challenge. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see the adoption over here and, and starting to like. I think we are looking at it exactly like you said, maybe seven to ten years behind the U.S., but it's trying to invest for to capture that. Yep, absolutely. Um, we're talking with Bruce Levine, who's now a senior strategy advisor for Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Uh, 
Bruce has been joined, joining John Dobby to sort of go after this ETF portfolio management, active management of ETFs. Bruce, what do you think about the value you're trying to bring to John? What, what's going to be, you think, your role as a strategy advisor? How are you trying to help John and sort of things you're focused on day to day? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And, and um, I think we have a really nice division of sort of responsibilities. You know, John really is the CIO and uh, in the markets every day. And, and does a level of research that I couldn't even dream of. Um, you know, but I've had experience uh, in uh, early-stage ventures like Wisdom Tree, like iShares, of um, you know, hiring, um, strategy, uh, raising money, capitalizing the company, um, you know, all those kind of things that have, I have the scars to prove it from, from these other uh, um, pursuits. So... You know, I'm, I'm a good sounding board for him um, on many of these things and uh, a lot of the partnership discussions that we have, uh, but really just uh, another good voice to help him figure out how to grow. Yep. Uh, so what's, as, as, you, as you think forward, is that uh, th- you're teasing up some things you're going to be working on to trying to get into some different partnerships and trying to, to raise some capital and, and make, you know, what's your, what's your expansionary plans? Like what, what's the five years out, Astoria's, what, what's the profile do you guys look like? Yeah, so I think we're going to have a team of really high-quality people. We started that process already of hiring them. Uh, I think uh, we're going to be seen as um, really smart, really fair, good value for what we're doing. Uh, I would hope that um, we'll gain a lot of new clients and a lot of new assets in the next five years. Um, you know, for now, we definitely want to be independent, um, but we want to partner with RIAs, family offices, um, you know, others in different ways, uh, you know, as we, as we begin to grow this. And uh, I, think, I think for both John and I, um, we have a long view of, of this business, and we think that we're in the right spot, and we want to take the long view and build it well, not take shortcuts. And, I, you know, I think we'll have a nice, nice company over the next five years. Right. It uh, sounds like you guys are doing some, some very interesting things. Um, I think the, you know, the, the tr- the, when you talk about the challenges of the traditional active, active management, I mean, how do you see for the traditional firms, the big you know, asset management firms, what are, as you, as you see, you know, a lot of these big asset management firms still have not embraced ETFs, although they're starting to slowly get in there. I mean, what do you think, how do you see the asset management industry generally shaping out over the ne- coming five to 10 years? I mean, do you see um, just in, in continued adoption of passive? I mean, do you worry, is passive getting too big for itself? I mean, how do you, how do you see that whole industry shaping yeah. up? A lot of questions in there, but uh, let, let me take a shot at it. Uh, so first of all, you know, there's a lot of business models out there um, that are getting, um, you know, uh, a free ride because the market's been up a long time here, and um, but who haven't changed their business models to deal with the asset management history that are of the future. Um, and so, you know, you see some of the mutual fund companies, for example, jumping into ETFs here, you know, fairly late in the game from my perspective. Uh, they had a chance to have meaningful businesses in ETFs, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, but they, they more or less hoped that the ETF thing just wouldn't take off. They hoped it would go away. Uh, and when it didn't, you know, they were left without a strategy in that space. So I think there's going to be some challenges for those folks, and that will probably lead to consolidation in the industry. Um, you know, I think this, this idea of active management with passive underlying has long-term legs. It, 
it's not the only way one can manage money, um, but I think it's it's going to be very very popular. Uh, you know, the move toward passive, uh, you know, I think is a little overblown uh, in the sense of you know there's not just one kind of passive. Um, as you and I know from Wisdom Tree, you know we have a different way of uh, managing indexes that are non-cap weighted, and so you know there's there's always going to be rotation uh, in the markets and uh, different ways of indexing the markets. And I'm, I'm not sure that you know I buy into the idea that it's causing any great harm to anybody. Yeah, no, and I even think about, about the indexing as just really an investment strategy and whether or not it's quote-unquote active or passive, it's sort of a strategy. <laughs> and increasingly, yeah. you might see more active ETFs, something I'm, I'm focused on. Um, is it, what do you, the, the big, one of the big trends in this active discussion is will non-transparent active, you know, these active managers say that they got some secret sauce they need to hide. Do you buy into that? Do you think we'll ever get these non-transparent active ETFs? Or do you think people, it's even useful to have a non-transparent ETF? Yeah, so I've always been sort of um, a seller of this idea. And the reason is, you know, of all the things that surprise me the most of the, about the ETF sort of juggernaut, you know, that was different than when we thought when we launched it, was um, how many uses people find for the product because it's so flexible and so transparent. So, you know, whether that's, you know, writing covered calls on your ETF or being able to short it, or just being able to use it as a completion strategy because you know what's in it. And so once you take away this transparency and this flexibility, you know, it you lose a big part of the ETF community who uses these things for those reasons. So then you're left with a small slice that might be interested in, in some really, you know, um, good performance if it's there. So, you know, I, I think they, they may get some customers, but uh, I don't think it'll be a big influencer in the industry. Yeah, trying to bring up the walls, and, and uh, it, is, it is going to be interesting to see what, what shakes out there. As, as you think about people who are either trying to launch sort of an ETF business, there's a lot of new entrants to the ETFs, I mean, what do you think their biggest challenges are, um, having been through it so many times, and, and, and what do you just think about all the new ETF entrants that have come into the market yeah. over the last few years? Funny you ask that. I was just looking at some stats this morning. So it looks like there's about 104 sponsors of ETFs in the U.S., 33 of them have over a billion dollars, and 18 of them have over five billion dollars. And for the longest time, that list was only about, there were only about 15 firms that were actually you know, trying to do ETFs until about maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, so there's this very long tail of people jumping in uh, at the end, not, the, not necessarily the end, but uh, fairly late in the game. Uh, clearly a lot of unprofitable business models out there. So, again, I think there'll be consolidation. Um, you know, I'm all for innovation. Uh, the industry was built on innovation, and there continues to be some good innovation. Uh, but it, it's getting harder for sure. And, uh, you know, the market uh, will pass judgment on, on those that, that don't make it. And then, you know, some funds will continue to close. And um, But I think, you know, for someone wanting to invest with ETFs, this is where someone like John Davi, who's on top of this all the time and looking at all these new products and the different ways they could impact your portfolio is useful because uh, it's very hard for the average person to keep up with all that's going on in the world of ETFs. Right. 
and who are who do you think should be reaching out to you know if you if you think about these type of partnerships who are the types of partners you want calling you looking you up and, and trying to figure out ways to work together yeah i guess there's a diff- few different types you know one is um you know anyone who wants a real uh expertise in etfs you know between john myself uh some other people that were in the process of firing, you know, there's a real in-depth knowledge of it. And, and, and to really understand ETFs, um, there's, there's a lot of people who understand them at the cursory level, but they go much deeper about how they trade, how they're structured, how the rebalances work, um, how the taxation of them works. Uh, if you want a tax loss harvest, you have to understand the correlation between ETFs. So if you're looking for uh, someone who really can get deep in that, who could either manage you know, direct accounts, you could sub-advise accounts. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of partner we'd be looking for, someone who would really value that expertise. Now, you sort of talked about a little bit, do you think there's going to be consolidation potentially in ETS, consolidation potentially in active managers. What about in sort of the role that you guys are doing? Do you see consolidation in the advisory business? Do you, th- do you think that's a, a potential path for you guys to say, listen, there's advisors out there, we can make them more efficient, bring ETS to their business? Is that something you're going to go after, trying to consolidate some different uh, advisors? Yeah, I mean, I guess to be fair, I see consolidation all over asset management, including the advisory world. I think uh, in total, you know, clients have been paying fees over the last few decades that are higher than they need to, and that's all kind of getting shaken out of the system now. And as that shakes out, you know, it's going to leave some people struggling, and so consolidation makes sense as, as fees, you know, there's relentless fee pressure. So, uh, you know, we're certainly open to those kinds of transactions and, uh, you know, we like inorganic growth as, and, and organic growth. Um, but, you know, again, uh, I think the, the key is, do you have the business model that is um, ready to compete in this sort of ever-changing and fast-changing asset management world? Um, and if you do, you can move forward. And if you can't, if you don't, maybe that is a time to consolidate. So we're down into our, our final few minutes. Um, as you think about, you know, the, the the big people, things that you've sort of learned along the way, uh, maybe sort of talk about some people that have dramatic, you know, you talked about Lee Cranesfest from iShares. Anybody yeah. else who's been a, a big influence on your career, things that they, they brought to you that, you know, you're you're just sort of very great, grateful and thankful for? Uh, yeah, there have been a few. Uh, you know, one um, is... Uh, a guy named Nate Most, who, um, when I met him, was in his mid-80s. And he's, there's a few people who claim to be the father of the spider, but he is, he is really, probably did more than anybody. And um, I had the pleasure of working with Nate, you know, on product development. Um, hmm. And he, this was an 85-year-old guy. He was an engineer by training uh, with just an, a curiosity about him uh, to do new things that never left him. And so uh, it was just fascinating to work with him, and he just kept uh, coming up with new ways to think about this and new ways to explain it to people. Uh, so he was one. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I can't uh, ignore my our, our good friend Jonathan Steinberg as well, yeah. who um, really has been an inspirational leader uh, at Wisdom Tree. Uh, and, you know, Wisdom Tree um, pulled something off that uh, that few other companies had, which is every other ETF business that launched was the division of an existing company. 
and Wisdom Tree started from from scratch, basically, with a great idea uh, and good people, and you know made it happen. And and, and Jonathan was, you know, just uh, really the the core of that the whole way through. Relentless. We're going to try to bring him on to the program early next year to tell his his personal story. Um, yeah. Any anything that from just your days at Wisdom Tree, things that were shockingly hard, things that you know, things that you were maybe surprised by from your days with us? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I think we got some products, um, you know, we had the right idea and the wrong execution, and sometimes we had the right idea and the right execution. Uh, so, you know, the, the currency hedge products, which uh, you had a big hand in, uh, we initially got wrong and then eventually got right. And, uh, and when we got them right, we had some really big funds and some great success. And uh, and they were you know good vehicles for the for the clients, so I think uh, no major surprises, just uh, a lot of minor surprises along the way, a lot of course correcting, and you know driving forward with the business. Yep. So maybe down to our, our final final question here, just um, as you reflect on on you know where you guys are at Astoria, what what we're any final closing thoughts, things you want to share with us that we haven't, haven't quite talked about yet? Um, let me think here. Yeah, I would just encourage people to um, reach out to us and start to have a conversation. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're a new firm, but we are uh, staffed by some people who have been around the block in the ETF world and really have a good sense of what we're doing. So, um, you know, even if you're an institution, um, you know, we can, we can do things for you. And then, um, again, it, uh, my experience was that it was always nice to work with new firms because uh, you didn't have to have a, a lot of um, you know, baggage that you were dealing with, and, and I think that would be the case with us as well. So, No constraints. Yeah. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us on, on the show today. Thank you so much, Jeremy. We've been talking with Bruce Levine, now a senior strategy advisor for Astoria Portfolio Advisors, a board member at Wisdom Tree, my former boss at Wisdom Tree. It's been a great conversation with John and Bruce. Thanks for listening to us. We'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast, listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.